So let's look at our passage for today. This is in the book of Micah, Micah chapter 5, 7 through 15. Then the remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for anyone or linger for mankind. Then the remnant of Jacob will be among the nations, among many peoples, like a lion among animals of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which tramples and tears as it passes through, and there is no one to rescue them. Your hand will be lifted up against your adversaries, and all your enemies will be destroyed. In that day, this is the Lord's declaration, I will remove your horses from you and wreck your chariots, and I will remove the cities of your land and tear down all your fortresses. I will remove sorceries from your hands, and I will not have any more fortune tellers, and you will not have any more fortune tellers. I will remove your carved images and sacred pillars from you so that you will no longer worship the work of your hands. And I will pull up the Asherah poles from among you and demolish your cities. I will take vengeance and anger and wrath against the nations that have not obeyed me. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we, we just want to trust and believe and obey that you are the Holy One of Israel and that you are present amongst us in your greatness. Lord, a lot of times your greatness looks very simple and weak, like preaching the Bible and simple things like the Lord's Supper or the fact that we're just here. And, uh, Lord, we don't want to take any of that for granted. We know that you're here in your greatness to open our eyes up to see beautiful things from your word, to see the fact that we need to depend upon you wholeheartedly. And we do in this moment, Lord. We, we depend upon you to have soft hearts, uh, to be able to receive your word, to trust and obey it. In Christ's name, amen. So, if you're new with us today, we, we are currently in a, a teaching series called Future Now. Where we have been looking at the book of Micah in the first part of the Bible. Micah was an a Old Testament prophet. And the book of Micah is seven chapters, but it's essentially three sermons. right? And those three sermons all have the same themes. And they are warning the people about the judgment of God and of the hope to come. So it's warning, judgment, and hope in uh, three sermons, and we have been looking at chapters four and five, which have been all hope. So for, this is the fourth week, four weeks of nothing but hope. That is, that's amazing. And what we see here, the hope uh, that Micah sets before us is that the Messiah, the promised king is coming into the world and he's creating a new humanity, a new uh, people, a new society, a new kingdom. Um, and th- that's what he's talking about. So a new community of people. So our passage sets before us a couple of choices. And here's the first choice. The first choice is between victims and victors. A victor is just someone who wins, is victorious, conquers. Let's look at verse 7 of Micah chapter 5. The remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for anyone or linger uh, for mankind. So, this passage is saying that God's people are like dew on the grass, like fresh, uh, fresh rain, like the rain that's, that's very appropriate this morning. We have fresh rain coming down that's going to bring uh, life. 
So just to be clear, what we're saying about these promises in the book of Micah is they find their fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ, but not only that, his continuing work through the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what Micah is saying has already began to come to pass a long time ago with the birth of Christ and continues to have effects all the way up until this moment right now um, in the church. So the future is now. And so as a result of these things, we as Christians ought to be like dew. Right? We ought to be like fresh rain. Um, and we know what that's like. It's been really dry lately, hasn't it? We, we need this rain. But when the rain comes down, it brings life. It causes, uh, it causes everything uh, to grow. Um, the rain has, has, a, has had a positive effect on my lawn. Has it had a positive effect on yours? Yeah, I've heard people even this morning say they were, they were uh, mowing. So the church ought to be like that. The church of Jesus Christ and Christians ought to have a positive influence on the community. We ought to be a life-giving presence here uh, and beyond. But the church, Christians, are also to be like a lion in this passage. If you look at verse 8 and 9. The remnant of Jacob will be among many nations, among many peoples. Look at this. Like a lion among animals of the forest. Like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which tramples and tears as it passes through. There is no one to rescue them. Your hand will be lifted up against your adversaries, and your enemies will be destroyed. So, And the reason here that the church is called the remnant of Jacob is Jacob was the father of Israel, basically, the nation of Israel. He was the father, had 12 sons, uh, and he was, you know, Israel came from him. And one of his sons uh, was named Judah. And right before uh, Jacob, as he was dying, he told them what was going to happen in the future, all of his sons. And this is what he said to Judah in Genesis 49, 9. Judah is a young lion, my son. You return from the kill and he crouches. He lies down like a lion or a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? So what's going on here is that kings in, in the ancient Near East, back in the day during that time, were depicted as lions. So the Messiah, right, the promised king of Israel, Jesus and his people are described as a lion here. Uh, lions don't really need much defense. They're ready to meet any challenge that they, uh, they come across. So the picture here is of the church as a victorious, life-giving blessing to the world. Okay? So it sounds confusing, all this imagery here, but this is the basic idea. The church and Christians ought to be a victorious, life-giving blessing in the world. All right? So wherever there's dew and rain... There's life. So we know that, as we said, because we've been mowing a lot of grass here recently. So wherever the true church is, there is going to be life, good things, blessing, peace, love, all these things. And it always been the case. The church throughout history has always been a culture of life and blessing in the midst of a culture of death and despair and chaos. Look what Jesus said in John 37. Uh, John chapter 7, 30, uh, verse 37, 38. On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. That's bold. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow deep within him. So Jesus Christ 
offers to the world living water to satisfy our sin-parched souls. And that's for you here this morning. Jesus Christ says, listen, the, 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 the thirst and the, the hunger that you have deep down within that you've tried to satisfy with all kinds of different things, only he can meet that need. Only he can give you that living water. And he, he offers it to us as the word of God is preached. When we're thirsty and we come to him for drink, he satisfies it. He fills up the well inside us. But look what this passage says. Once we do that, we will have streams of living water flow deep from within. See, Jesus comes to dwell within us and fills up the well of our, our hearts and our souls, but it's bubbling over. It's got to spill over out into the community and bringing life and blessing uh, to the world. He does this through the power of the Spirit. So what does this look like in real life? What does it look like to be like this rain that's coming down? Well, let me, let me tell you a story uh, to kind of illustrate what this, this ought to be like. Um, I uh, watched a little documentary on YouTube uh, recently called Boat Lift. It's about 9-11. Anybody seen that? It's really cool. It's, it's really short. It's like 15 minutes long. Uh, it was about 9-11 when the, um, the, the Trade Center buildings collapsed, and um, uh, they shut down Manhattan, and... Uh, uh, all the people ran to the water, the waterfront, and there was no way in and no way out, and the only way out was uh, by, by water. So this documentary uh, tells the story of the boat captains and the crews uh, that day rescuing uh, these people. So one, one uh, owner was sitting, a boat owner was sitting at his home watching all this take place uh, on TV, and he said, I've got to do something. I've got a boat. I can go down there go across the water, and go rescue these people. And his wife said, well, what if they are attacked again? He said, I got to do what I have to do, and, and no one's going to stop me right now. I'm going to go and help these people out. He said, I can't sit around and watch these people suffer. Another boat captain said, morally, that is right and wrong, this is the right thing to do. So I have to take my boat and go rescue these people because this is the right thing to do. And these were just average, ordinary people. These were men who sacrificed despite the risk. And this is what real love looks like. This is love. It is sacrifice for those that you normally wouldn't sacrifice for. But Christians are called to do this not only in times of disaster. But we are called to sacrifice for those who do not deserve it, not expecting anything in return every day. And everywhere. That's what real love looks like. That's what it looks like to bring life into uh, your, your home, into the community, is the sacrifice for people who don't deserve it, and you're not expecting anything uh, in return, is to love and uh, serve them. This passage says that we uh, the Christians are like a lion. A church ought to be like a lion. And lions are the king of the jungle, aren't they? Yeah, they're, they're amazing. Um, did you know that you can hear the roar of a lion from five miles away? I don't think they're worried about anybody or anything. You know what I mean? Uh, the, if you've seen the Planet Earth uh, series, a little documentary, uh, it, this pride of lions attack and take down an elephant. Right? Lions are bad. Right? They, they, are the, they are the kings of the jungle. 
One of the ways that Jesus is referred to in the Bible is the lion of the tribe of Judah, referring to that passage that we just looked at in Genesis 49. Jesus is the fulfillment of that passage. Jesus, uh, and Christians are victorious in Christ. Right? Jesus has conquered everything. Jesus has conquered this life. Jesus has conquered sin. Jesus has conquered death. Jesus has conquered the devil and all demonic forces. He has conquered uh, hell and everything, and he has risen from the dead. And Christians win in him. We are victorious in Jesus Christ. Death has no power of us. The devil is defeated. So, Christians are to be a victorious, life-giving blessing everywhere, all the time. But here's the problem. We live in a culture of victimhood. Right? Our culture is less like planet Earth, those lions, and more like the Wizard of Oz lion. You remember him? Didn't he hold his tail? He was like, he was petting his tail. We're, we're more like that. We don't have much courage. Um, uh, victimhood, uh, culture of victimhood means that it's good to be seen as a victim of whatever injustice uh, that might be. That, that we like to put our victimhood out there for everyone to like or feel sorry for us or whatever it is. Uh, in 2015, uh, I'll give you an example. Columbia University, there was a, there was a protest against uh, sexual assault. And um, the protest consisted of a young lady carrying her mattress around cam- campus uh, and including going to class. And uh, she um, uh, was doing that, was going to continue to do that until uh, the accused uh, person uh, was expelled uh, from the school. She was seen as a hero. The New York Times uh, art critic, uh, Roberta Smith, called it succinct and powerful as an art exhibit. Uh, Here's the kicker, though. Columbia University and New York Police Department failed to establish any wrongdoing on the part of the student that was accused. So they threw the rule of law out in order uh, because... um, that, that didn't matter to them. It didn't matter if this, this young man uh, actually did this. What mattered was this young lady being seen as a victim. All right? And that's an extreme case. And I know that it probably doesn't work like that here. But we live in a culture of victimhood. All right? victim, being, being a victim means that we're not responsible for what we're supposed to do. And we blame it on something else or someone else. That's being a victim. I can't do anything about it. It's someone else's fault or some, something's fault. We fail to take responsibility, and we blame it on someone else. This, is, this goes all the way back to the garden, doesn't it? It was that woman. It was her fault, you know? Um, we don't do that nowadays. Uh, we fail to take responsibility in life, and our bodies made us do it, right? I can't do what God asked me to do because something's wrong with my body. My body makes me angry. My body makes me lash out or lazy or, or whatever, whatever it is. We are victims to our oppressive bodies. We fail to take responsibility in life, and it's the world's fault. This is a big one. Right? It's the government. Right? It's, it's whatever. Someone in the community, it's because our world is so crazy and chaotic. I can't do what I'm supposed to do. I'm a victim. I see this all the time when it comes to drugs and alcohol. My job as a, as a case manager, people, people, I heard people say it like this, it's, it's in my genes. Right? Drinking and doing drugs is something that's it's in my genes. My question is, which one? 
Have you identified the uh, meth gene? Have you identified the fentanyl gene? Why did it change? Why, is it, why are your genes constantly changing to different uh, substances? Right? Have, you ever, have you ever had a doctor draw blood from you to prove that this is a biological cause for your, uh, for your sinning against God by continuing to go down this path? Right? We fail to take responsibility. We blame it on our feelings. Right? We feel like something is happening to us and we're victims rather than victorious, victorious, victorious in Christ. This passage is saying to us, that the church ought to be a victorious, life-giving blessing, not victims. We're not, we're not victims. We're, we're victorious. We've already been risen, raised with Christ. But we've got to recognize that we live in a, a culture of victimhood. So this passage not only tells us who we ought to be, it tells us how we get to be that way. It lays out the process for how we become the people that we ought to be. So, and we have a choice in the matter. It's like I said at the beginning. This passage sets before us a couple choices. So here's the second one. Choices between self-reliance or sovereign grace. And we'll unpack that. Verses uh, 10 and 11. In that day, this is the Lord's declaration, I will remove your horses from you and wreck your chariots. I will remove the cities of your land and tear down all your fortresses. So the Lord is saying here, and that in order for us to be a victorious, life-giving blessing, he must remove everything that we rely on in life other than him. He's got to remove it. That's what it says. The passage repeats the word over and over again, remove, remove, remove. And the word literally is to hack down, to cut it down, to chop it down. So think a big piece of property, big piece of property out here in the, in the eastern panhandle, and, and someone just wants to clear all that land. John Deere uh, has a felling head for an excavator, right? And if anybody has one of those and you want to let me try it out for a couple hours, and this, is, this is like an amazing big toy, right? But it basically, this thing is amazing. It cuts and grabs like multiple trees at one time, and then you could take the excavator and just drop them wherever you want. It's absolutely amazing. Right? And the Lord is saying, I'm going to do that in your life. This is his love towards us. He's going to cut down everything that we rely on uh, in our lives. And that's what it's talking about here in this passage when it mentions the horses and the chariots and the cities and the fortresses. These were defensive. These were, these were defensive and offensive uh, military um, uh, weapons and fortifications. And this is what Israel was relying on. They were relying on military and defense uh, to protect them from their, their enemies. And we are a society of self-reliance. We see this everywhere in our society. We trust in ourselves. We follow our hearts. I was uh, doing my best uh, one time to prevent someone from making a horrible decision with their life. And they responded to me, I have to follow my heart. The Bible says that's the last thing you ought to do as a Christian. The last thing in the world you ought to do is follow your heart. Gen uh, Jeremiah 17, 9, I don't know how much clearer it could get. The heart is more deceitful than anything else. And, but that is where we are at as a society, as a culture. All right, the, our, our culture says follow your heart. Trust your heart. God says 
that thing is a compulsive liar. Right? Your feelings are compulsive liars. Your heart is a liar. Don't be friends with it. So let me give you an example uh, of, of how Christians do this. One way Christians do this is by trusting in their experiences rather than the Word of God. Right? And here's the problem with trusting in your experiences. Your experiences can lie to you. You can think it's God, you know, trying to read the signs and maybe you feel some type of way and have some type of emotional experience, but, you know, it can lie to you. How many of you guys are into ge- geometry in here? One or two, that's what I thought. Yeah, so uh, there's something called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. It's a way of thinking about the Christian life. It is, uh, is credited to John Wesley. He's the founder of the Methodist movement in the 18th century. And a, the, basically, a quadrilateral is a square. So think four square. You guys remember four square? Love that game, right? You got the four squares, okay? So think, there's something in each square. And all these things are good. We need all these for the Christian life. We need experience. We need to know God personally and have experiences with him, all right? Our feelings, feelings are real. God gave us those for a reason. Reason is in the other square. Reason is thinking through things, using logic and just processing things rationally. Uh, third square is tradition, right? Now, believe it or not, we are not the first Christians to ever exist. The church has been around for 2,000 years, and Christians have been thinking about the Christian life for 2,000 years. And you know what? As a Christian, you're not on an island beside yourself. It's not an individualistic endeavor. You should be a part of a church community, right? But also, there's the scriptures, the Bible. So those are the four squares. That's the Wesleyan uh, quadrilateral. And I got a picture here to help us uh, think about it. I think this is actually, this is actually really uh, helpful here, that this is the way we ought to line these things up, that scripture ought to be the foundation for our life, and then we build upon that with tradition, experience, uh, and reason. But a lot, what, here's what we do as a society. We try to build the foundation with the walls. You cannot build a foundation for the Christian life on your experiences because your house will fall, right? It, it will, you will not be victorious in the Christian life that way. And because the Lord loves us and because he loves the world, he won't let that go on forever. He loves us too much to leave us where we're at. He will cut down and remove everything that we rely on other than him. Not only does he got to clear the land in our lives, he's got to grind the stumps. So look at verse 12 and 13, 12 through 14. I will remove sorceries from your hands, and you will not have any more fortune tellers. I will remove your carved images and sacred pillars from you so that you will no longer worship the work of your hands. I will pull up the Asherah poles from among you and demolish your cities. When it says uh, Asherah here, Asherah was an ancient Near Eastern fertility goddess. So these people were farmers. This was a, a farming culture, an agrarian society, and they depended upon the rains for their survival and their, their, their economy. So the nations around them would worship these fertility gods like Asherah. So Israel was very tempted to rely upon Asherah to bring the rain. So they would, they would build these idols, these poles, 
right? And they would uh, worship and serve uh, these gods, and there was all kinds of immorality uh, involved. But the Lord is saying here, he's going to come through with a stump grinder, and he is going to pulverize these things. So the Lord's work here is, is cutting down and uprooting is targeted at idolatry. All of these things is what we call idolatry. The fortresses and the chariots and the horses and the Asherah and the sorcerers are all relying upon something other than the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Protestant Reformation broke out in Europe and this whole movement of Christianity separated from the Catholic Church, there was, there was a pastor named John Calvin. He was the leader of the Protestant Reformation in Switzerland. Martin Luther was in Germany. And this is what Calvin said in the Institutes of Christian Religion. He said, the, heart, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Tell me that's not biblical and true. That our hearts, like a conveyor belt, are constantly pumping out things that we lean on and rely on other than Jesus. And this includes Christians. If you're a Christian, guess what? Your heart is an idol factory. It is. This is what sin is. This is the way the Bible talks about sin. Sin is false worship. It is uh, worshiping uh, another God, relying upon something other than um, God. So what is an idol? An idol is anything that you do to make it rain. Think about Israel. Rain is a good thing, isn't it? We need rain. But when rain becomes a God thing, and you worship that, and you, you need that so much more that you put it over and above God, well, that's a bad thing. Right? So make it rain. Right? I never thought I would say make it rain with quotation marks. But make it rain is whatever you do to make life feel more complete. What is that for you? What is it that you have or you want or you do that makes you feel like life is complete? Or if you had it, your life would be complete. That or those things are your idols. What do you do that you think makes you a success? That's your idol. And the Lord says that he's got to grind it up. And that's what stump grinders do, don't they? You, you, you put it up on top of the stump, and it has these teeth, and it just goes back and forth, and it just, it just mulches the stump all the way down uh, to the roots. So this passage is about hope. The question is, how can we do this? How can we do these things? How can we rely upon uh, the Lord Jesus? How can we uproot the light of idols in our lives? And here's the point of this passage. We cannot... We cannot do this apart from his sovereign grace. Do you hear me? That's what this passage is saying. We cannot do this. Literally, in the Hebrew text of this passage, nine times, nine times, the Lord says, I will, 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 and I will. You get it? He's got to do it. We cannot do it. Only the Lord can do this. Just think about this. Our reliance cannot help us to rely upon the Lord. Self-reliance is of, of no help. We need grace from God. What is grace? 
Yeah. You know, we define grace as God's unconditional love a lot of times. That God accepts you just as you are. There was a guy, his name was uh, David Powelson. He was um, one of the founders of the biblical counseling movement, uh, which he died in 2019. But basically the biblical counseling movement sought to recover the, the pastoral care and counseling uh, within the church rather than giving people to the world's idols and the, the counseling, the psychology, and whatever else uh, of the world. But counseling that's, has the foundation in the scriptures. And this is what he said in his article, um, Idols of the Heart and Vanity Fair. He says, the gospel is better than unconditional love. And the gospel is just Jesus Christ, his life, death, burial, and resurrection, and our sal- salvation from sin in him. The gospel is better than unconditional love. The gospel says God accepts you just as Christ is. Think about that. God has a contra-conditional love for you. And here's what that means. Christ bears the curse you deserve. This is the gospel, that at the cross, Christ exchanged places with you and bore the judgment of God on your behalf, the curse of God, which is death and hell and separation from God from all eternity. Jesus took that for you in his death uh, at the cross. But not only that, Christ is fully pleasing to, to the Father and gives you his own perfect goodness. So that's the great exchange of the cross, is that he takes all of our mess and he gives us all of his blessing and all of his goodness and all of his righteousness and we become united to him. So God accepts you as Christ is. That's the beautiful thing, but it goes on here. Christ reigns in power, making you the Father's child. And look at this, coming close to you to begin to change what is unacceptable to God about you. See, that, that's, that, that is greater than unconditional love. This means that as Christians, we still have things in our lives that is unacceptable to God. But Christ comes close to help us with that. See, God loves you right where you are, but he loves you too much to leave you where you are. He wants to take you someplace. He wants to remove everything else that you rely on and uproot uh, all, the, all the idols in our life. And this is the good news that God calls you to rely on. The fact that Jesus lived for you, the fact that he died for you at the cross, the fact that he was buried for you, the fact that he was raised from the dead for you, and that he's going to return again one day. This is what he calls you to believe in, to have faith in. But here's the deal. Only the Lord by grace gives you faith. So God says, you need to rely on me, but only he can give you the ability to do that. He will do it, not us. Philippians 1.29 puts it like this. For you have been given, look at this, look at these words. You have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. So you have been given the privilege of relying on Christ. That is the gift of God from his grace. So God calls us to rely on him, but we don't trust in our own reliance on him. You see what I'm saying? We don't trust in our own trust of Jesus. That is not Christian faith. Faith is knowing that God has been good to us, and we know that because of all the promises that he's made us at the cross and in Christ. And he gives us all those promises, not because the strength of our faith, 
Not because of how much we trust in him or how much we believe in him. He gives us the promises in Jesus because he can. And he's good. And he's merciful and, and gracious. And it is only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can get our hearts to rely on him. Only God can do it. He says, I will. I will. I will. I will. Go back to the stump grinder for a minute. Stump grinders, uh, they grind away the roots and they, they mulch them up. Anybody ever try to uh, dig one of those up, dig a big one up now? And so, that's hard to do, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's a lot easier when you have a, a, a stump, stump grinder. So, God wants to mulch the idols in our lives. And whatever that is. Whatever we give our time, talent, skills, and money to over and above Jesus. He wants to mulch those things. And this is what the Bible calls repentance. Repentance is turning away from idols. Whatever it is, I'm giving my time, my heart, my reliance, my love, whatever makes me feel like I'm somebody, I'm a success, make my life better, I'm a happiness, and I'm turning to Jesus. But here's the deal. Only the Lord, by grace, gives repentance. He will do it, not us. In the book of Acts, when uh, Peter uh, returned from Jerusalem or t- returned to Jerusalem to his home church, he had been out uh, sharing the good news of the gospel with a guy named uh, Cornelius and his family and his employees and his neighbors, and uh, and he comes back to his church and he tells them the story about what God did there and how they converted to Jesus. And this is what uh, this is how that passage that story concludes in Acts 11. When they heard this, that's the church. When they heard this, they became silent and they glorified God saying, so then God has given repentance resulting in life even to the Gentiles. Right? So, so the church interpreted this uh, conversion and said, God did that. God gave them the ability to turn away from their idols and to trust Jesus. So look at the math of that passage. Look, look at these words right here. Follow the math. God plus given or gave, which is grace, plus repentance equals life. You see that? God gives us the gift of turning away from our sins, and the result is a victorious, life-giving blessing to the community. Over in Germany in the 1500s, when the Reformation was happening. They rediscovered the good news of the gospel. Um, it, it all began with a guy named Martin Luther. And he had, he had some issues with the Catholic Church. And he wrote 95 things out, 95 problems, right? And he nailed them to the church door in the community. He said, I want to have a discussion with you all about this. That was, that, was a, that was a public Facebook post back in the day. Clink, clink, clink on the church door, 95, 95 problems. First one was this. When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And that is exactly right. We don't just repent in the beginning. No, the whole way through. If our main problem is, is, is idolatry, then every day, all day long, we are repenting and turning away from things that we are relying upon other than Jesus. And we're looking to him for forgiveness and grace and strength to, uh, to carry on. This is how we become a victorious, life-giving blessing to everyone. 
This is how we become lion-like. You become lion-like in life victorious when you turn away from things uh, that bring about your demise and your defeat. And you look to Christ and you remember, man, I'm, I've been given victory over this thing. I'm forgiven. This is how we become fresh rain. Salvation is of the Lord. God saves. The Lord saves. Jesus saves. From the beginning all the way to the end. We cannot do it, but Jesus can do it through us. Because we have a responsibility. We have choices to make. I'm going to be a victim? Am I going to rely upon myself? I'm going to trust in the victory of Christ. I'm going I'm to rest in his sovereign grace that I am absolutely, we just sang it, I depend upon him. Do we really believe those words? This is how we do it. And the offer is extended to you this morning. This offer, these choices, these responsibilities are extended to you. Like, will you rely upon Jesus alone for your salvation and for your life? And the offer is extended to you that Jesus loved you so much that he came down heaven to earth wrapped himself in humanity and suffered along with us and exchanged places with you at the cross. Took the curse for your sin down into the grave with him and rose victoriously over the dead and was alive for uh, walking around in the flesh for 40 days after that, appearing to over like 500 people. And he, and he ascended into heaven from where he reigns. And he offers you, if you're not a Christian here this morning, uh, the gift of salvation. Will you receive it? That is the question. Or will you rely upon him. Christian, the offer is also extended to you. Will you rely upon yourself? Will you blame shift onto other people or things or circumstances? Or will you rest in the victory of Christ and uh, throw your life in dependence upon him like a branch to a vine? This is how Micah ends in verse 15. He says, I will take vengeance and anger and wrath against the nations that have not obeyed me. All right, so the offer is to obey these words, to obey uh, the words of Micah and what the Spirit is saying to you and the spotlight that he's shining on your life, and the spotlight that he is shining on the cross for all the resources that you need. And that's what we want to respond to.